welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 106, recorded on May 19th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you again. This week, we're starting out with a story that is maybe a theme of 2019, and that is the side channel attacks, specifically on the Intel processors. And another one has been discovered this week that also impacts Linux. Yet another side channel speculative execution bug in Intel hardware. This is starting to get a bit old, isn't it? This time they're calling it zombie load. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the idea is that like it gets zombie information, it resurrects information from the dead. Um, the technical name for it is MDS, microarchitectural data sampling. I guess zom- zombies are way way cooler than microarchitectural data sampling. Fair enough. Yeah, it's actually a combination of three different vulnerabilities, and Red Hat have got a great write up of this and some videos. They've got a kind of high-level video that explains it with metaphors and then a really deep-dive video. So I'm very impressed with Red Hat for this. I suppose that's kind of their job. But either way, that's my go-to on this if you want to learn all about it. It is actually kind of interesting that Red Hat has one of the best takes for different levels of understanding. We'll link to a couple of different things in the show notes that are worth checking out, including their breakdown of the differences of MDS, say, versus a Meltdown or Spectre. But there's another aspect to this story that I think is fascinating to chat about a little bit, Joe, and that is, number one, you're not really fully safe, even after all of the microcode updates and whatnot, unless you disable hyperthreading. And number two, it's really something that shared hosting providers or cloud providers that have multi-tenant users on there need to worry about, more so than people that are on-premises or on a desktop PC. Not that those systems aren't affected, but just simply... It's a lot more of a risk when you have untrusted users on one box. Yeah, and if you've got six physical cores and no hyperthreading like me on my i5, then you're completely safe. But yeah, either way, it's not a huge deal if you're just using a personal system and you're completely in control of it. But yeah, those shared cloud hosting environments, that's where this is really going to cause a problem. Yeah, and some of the numbers are pretty dramatic. When you apply the fixes and you disable hyperthreading, you can get to nearly a 40% reduction in performance. And those are Intel's numbers. So those, if anything, may be a little conservative. And that's why Red Hat is saying that you really have to look at your specific use case, your specific workload, and do the risk assessment. Is it worth that performance impact to mitigate the risk? And in a lot of cases, it probably isn't. This really does seem like a tricky one for multi-tenant systems. And you kind of wonder, like, long-term, maybe this is going to sell some AMD systems because they're immune to the MDS vulnerabilities. And all Ryzen box is looking better and better for that desktop, Joe. I got to say, they're making it really appealing these days. Yeah, I mean, the value for money proposition is better. And now if the security proposition is better, then it feels like a no-brainer, really. I've always gone Intel because, I don't know, really, it's the name you know. You know you're not going to have any problems with Linux on it. But I hear great things about Ryzen, and really the data center is where this matters, and the Xeons are just absolutely dominating there. Maybe this is excellent news for AMD. But that said, some of the older side channel attacks, you know, they're still vulnerable to that. And it is conceivable that there will be future ones. I mean, it's almost certain, isn't it, that we're going to have future potential vulnerabilities for both Intel and AMD. 
I remember talking about that at the time that Spectre and Meltdown came out, uh, you know, around Christmas. We knew that was going to be just the start of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yep. And uh, we called it on TechSnap, too. We said this is, this is 2019 is going to be the year of uh, speculative execution and side channel attacks. It's it's a pretty handy feature that is ripe for the picking if you can get a process on the local box. And it was part of Intel's secret sauce. Now, AMD likes to boast that, well, we designed it with security in mind. You know, that'd be, that'd be what it is. I'm sure future Intel processors will work this out. But in the meantime, I just can't get over that 40% number. I can't tell if that's if that's real or not. And I'd love to get some information from the audience that has hands-on with this in data centers. Just let me know, at Chris LAS. Are you seeing performance impacts from these fixes and are they as dramatic or worse even than 40%? I'd love to just collect some anecdotal evidence uh, from the audience from various sources because that's, that's a huge story if it's true. There's also another topic I'm really, really interested in getting feedback. That's AMP. Now, oh, it was a couple of months ago we talked about this new committee that was being set up to oversee AMP. You'll have to forgive my brief summary of it. And we weren't sure what that would result in, but it seems like maybe we're seeing some of the first fruits of that committee's work. Yeah, AMP being accelerated mobile pages, which Google are very much in control of, even though they're trying to kind of spin it that they're not. And this makes websites load really quickly on mobile, specifically on Chrome on Android. Right. And from a publisher standpoint, you get featured in their carousel of search results with a live preview. So you get essentially top-tier placement, um, at like what you would get for a Google ad placement. Yeah, and the performance is amazing. It's really, really fast for the user. But one of the problems that publishers have is that the URL always shows as google.com slash whatever slash amp and then the URL of the page. And that's a bit confusing for people. You know, you think you're reading TechCrunch or the Register or whatever, but in fact, you're reading something that's on a Google URL. Well, and and publishers hate it because you're not sharing their URL. You're sharing a Google URL. It doesn't have their brand. It doesn't link directly to them. It's hard to track metrics. They hate it. Yeah. And fair enough. It's their content, I suppose. Fair enough. Well, yeah. And so the solution to this is to just obfuscate it. Just hide the fact that it's on Google servers and pretend that it's coming from the actual source. <laughs> yep. This is a thing. It's called Signed Exchange. And it is another Google initiative to solve a problem that was caused by Google AMP. So if you're not familiar, just a super brief overview. The reason what AMP is so dang fast is because it's all coming from Google server. Google pre-renders the page, caches everything. It's all pre-fetched. And then they deliver you a fully realized result immediately. Of course, the issue is, is then you're sending around Google links instead of website links. You lose that ID and that branding. So Google figured, well, what about this signed exchange idea that we have? It's a Google technology that provides a way to prove the source and origin of a web document. You can use signed exchange to determine a page's original publisher no matter where that document is being hosted at currently. A publisher can sign an HTTP request response pair with their domain certificate. So it's their cert that's signed. Thus, it generates a signed exchange, and it can be served to browsers sim similar to the way a web page is now, but it's served from Google's servers with your domain name, even though it's from their domain. But it's using your SSL key to prove that it's legitimately from you. <laughs> even though it's from Google. <laughs> this makes me feel very, very uncomfortable because at least those who are tech-savvy can know, all right, hang on, this is an AMP page that is hosted on Google servers because you can 
technically host an AMP page on your own server and it will be fast and everything, but obviously the Google cache is going to be amazingly fast. So that's what a lot of the publishers go for. Oh, it's a slippery slope, my friend, because it's not only fast, but it uses less data. So it's cheaper for mobile users. It uses less CPU because the uh, client isn't doing the rendering, so it saves battery life, and you get that carousel placement. And now you take it a step further. This is a Google technology. It's a, the signed exchange thing is something they're proposing. I mean, it's they're, they're proposing as a standard, working with other people. So it's it's something anybody could theoretically adopt, except for Safari and Firefox have signaled they have no intention of supporting it. So what you have is AMP content being served up by Google servers that only works in Google Chrome. I think the European Commission might be having a word with them about this shortly, if they're not careful. Man, this does not seem like the direction Google wants to go with this. Whew, I kind of get it, and I under- I appreciate that Signed Exchange actually is pretty clever technology that they're trying to establish as a standard, and Firefox could change its position. That's a really tough spot for Mozilla, though, because they lose either way. Because if they enable Google, then they encourage more lock-in, but if they don't support this, they're essentially left out of a game that is a lot larger than they could ever hope to be. That's a rock and a hard place for Firefox. Well, except that if you're using Firefox as your primary browser, then you won't even really know about this. And so you won't see the benefits of it, but you won't know what you're missing. Yeah. And I, I, I suppose it's possible, too, that Firefox could support this later on. It seems that the publishers don't like this very much, and that was something that the committee has also been very focused on. I'll put some uh, supporting links in the show notes for that. That's an interesting position. So Google is trying to drive this with a, with a lot of energy, and there's no real clear demand on end user's side, and there's no real clear demand on publisher side. So who is it that wants this? Well, Google, obviously. They want to have more control. I mean, we both tweeted about that purchase history thing this week, where you can see everything you've ever bought online as long as you've got the receipt going into your Gmail. And it just backs up the obvious fact that, of course, Google knows everything you're buying if your receipts all go through Gmail. Yeah, of course. Of course, they're indexing and categorizing that. We like we knew that. I actually kind of appreciate that they're willing to tell me that. In a way, it at least if they're transparent, then I can make an informed decision. So in a way, I respect that. Uh, it was alarming to go through that because... I was thinking, like, they'd have anything I bought on a Google account. No, 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 no. Anything that's ever emailed my Gmail account a receipt, uh, an Uber ride, a DoorDash, um, you know, buying something with Stripe uh, out in the real world. Google has it on the list. <laughs> Suddenly you realized how many sandwiches you'd be buying. <laughs> yeah, a lot of sandwiches, Joe. So maybe maybe I should cut back and uh, I could just use the Google list to keep track of things. <laughs> But it really does just come down to Google wanting complete control over all the data in the world so they can sell you stuff. I don't know. Um, I feel like that's a hard line you're taking. To me, it seems like there is there is a couple of things that it's doing that I like. Loading pages very, very fast and pre-rendering them. So they're saving bandwidth on mobile and CPU cycles. I get that. I think it would be better served from publishers directly. And the other thing that I, I, the other reason why I think that'd be a lot better is you could be better 
than your competition and get ranked higher in Google. Like if you really invested on building a responsive, fast website, you invested in designing things correctly, you did the right kind of images, you cached everything correctly, like you really, as a business, made that part of your focus. And as a result, the Google search results would reward you and you may show up above your competitors, which could matter a lot. All of that's gone now. It removes that pressure for publishers to really invest in their technology because now Google can come around, suck it all up, pre-render it, and then deliver it in a consumable way, and your site can be dog crap slow. And that I don't like at all. So there's the control aspect that we talk a lot about, and that feels like it's going to make the web experience for the rest of us not in Chrome a little less great. Um, and and control or not, there's that element to it too that I think is the is part of why people care about the AMP story. Well, I really hope that this advisory committee can do some good here. And I'm not very impressed with this first move that they've made, but it could be this amazing standard, this open standard that Google has kind of talked about and is trying to make happen that individual publishers could use and adopt and potentially have different variants of instead of just having all of that centralized control and obfuscating URLs is just the complete opposite of what I wanted to see with AMP. Well, I guess we've said our piece. If this topic does interest you, I want to draw your attention to a link in the show notes. We have a blog post by an individual who is a self-admitted AMP critic, but I love I love where he took it. He decided to join the advisory committee for AMP, and uh, they just recently had a meeting, and he documents it on his blog. I appreciate this level of transparency. Uh, he seems to have a rather rational take on it, and uh, links and cites a lot of the stuff that he talks about. So it's a really good reference, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, linuxactionnews.com slash 106. But you won't be reading that blog post running Windows on a Chromebook. Not that you'd ever want to, but it was almost, almost a real official bona fide thing. Yeah, we talked about this last summer, and the Windows aspect is not particularly interesting, but if you can dual boot, Chrome OS and Windows, then it's going to make dual booting Chrome OS and Linux that little bit easier, at least you would assume. But unfortunately, that project went nowhere. And so it's going to be just straight up Chrome OS with all the Android apps and the Linux apps on top of it. I love this story, though, because first of all, it had a great code name, Project Campfire. And it's one of those where just loose on Reddit, find this stuff, and they noticed recently it was like a user um, crossfrog or something like that on, on Reddit noticed that there was comments in the latest Chrome code bases that said that these features had been deprecated. They were pulling them out. I think about a world where you could have had a Chromebook that was running Android apps, Linux applications, and tributing Chrome OS, Windows, and Linux. I don't know the use case for that. But that's a hell of a lot of different ways you could use a three, four hundred, five hundred dollar laptop. Like that straight up would have been impressive. I think they've determined they've gotten there close enough with what Chrome, where Chrome OS has gone recently, that they thought, let's pull the plug on this for now. We don't need people running Windows on these things. And you know that Project Campfire, only a Mac user could have come up with that. That's pretty close to uh, boot camp for my money. Oh, you know what? I guess I hadn't really put that together. I suppose I kind of see it. Project Campfire. I was thinking because it was like a summer project. Oh, maybe. Maybe I'm uh, casting aspersions there, but that's the first thing I thought about was boot camp. Yeah. You could you could see where um, the, the logic had come, though. I bet you the thought process was, well, the one thing that's preventing people from switching to Chrome OS is that one Windows app. 
Because that's the same thing with Linux desktops. The one thing that prevents people from switching is like the one or two applications on Windows that you can't get on Linux. Maybe it's Premiere or it's some game or whatever it might be. They had to have a similar conversation at some Chrome OS development meeting and said, you know, if we made it possible for people to run Windows 10, even if it was like in a tiny light VM or something, then they could run that one application and switch to Chromebooks. That had to be it. And they sat back and looked at the way the market's going. And they said to themselves, eh, we don't really need to bother. But maybe old Goog saw that Gardner market forecast that was published in April. And they said, eh, I don't know. They read this report. And the report says something to the effect of only 75% of professional PCs will be running Windows 10 by 2021. I mean, it's a good chunk, right? But it's maybe not where the future's headed. And so they decided to invest in other places. That's got to be, that's got to be like the whole logic process, if I were to guess. Well, surely the other 25% is going to be Windows 7 because people are desperately clinging on to it. <laughs> yeah, actually, can you understand, right? If you just want to get something done and you need something that's compatible with Windows, Windows 7 does a heck of a job. The only problem is that pesky support that's expiring. And if you're, say, the South Korean government, you got to make some plans. And they are at least considering and testing migrating to Linux instead of Windows 10. That's according to the Korean Herald. Can I put my extremely cynical hat on for a second? Of course. I thought you were always wearing that hat. Oh, yeah, that's true. Let me put my extra cynical hat on top of it then. I can't help but think this is the South Korean government trying to shake down Microsoft for a bit of extra free support, just threatening them that we're going to move over to Linux. Because if you actually look at life in South Korea, you need Windows to do a lot of stuff. I remember having a conversation with a listener, uh, it must be a few years ago now, about how to do any sort of interaction with the government, you need to have a Windows PC. ActiveX, I think, specifically is what it is. Yeah, and, and some other applications that are only available for it. So for them to move over, it's not like switching out Office for LibreOffice. I think there's also some character support issues that aren't as solid as they should be. Yeah. And so it's not really a realistic proposition that South Korea could do this. Maybe. Um, you know, at a certain point, you have to move on from ActiveX, right? There, there's, other, there's other factors at play here. My understanding, well, I don't know, I've never actually been directly familiar with it, but from conversations I've had and from what I've read, that ActiveX requirement comes about because the government has their own self-implemented form of encryption because at the time that they built all those systems, it was illegal to export anything beyond 40-bit from the United States. And so they came up with their own solution that is implemented with ActiveX. But if they own that, then they can move it to something newer. And it's it's high time to do that. Let's be honest. Um, Microsoft is deprecating Internet Explorer. They're deprecating Windows 7. They're up against a couple of massive market forces. And yeah, they could be trying to leverage a few more years of free support. But it looks like they're doing the math. They say it would cost them about 780 billion won, or uh, I think that's 655 U.S. greenbacks, 655 million U.S. greenbacks, but it also anticipates long-term cost reductions after the entire total cost of ownership has been calculated. So they've been looking into that. They don't mention like specific plans or actions, but they do say one of their goals is to avoid building reliance on a single operating system. The most disappointing thing about this whole story is that they're going to build their own custom distro based on Ubuntu instead of using Red Star OS. Well, yeah, I agree. Red Star OS is best OS, uh, no doubt about it. But I, 
I really hope this doesn't go the route of Munich, where they really like they fork off their own version of Ubuntu. They fork off their own thing of LibreOffice. Like if they were smart, they would do this in a very standardized enterprise rollout form. Get mainline Ubuntu. Get a support contract. It's twenty five dollars a desktop. Get a support contract with Canonical. Right, do it the proper way. So that way these are supported machines. These things are performing a critical function. To treat them otherwise is just asking for disaster. <laughs> like, this is just, oh, just spend a little bit of money here. Yeah, even if it ends up costing you a little bit more, at least you're not completely locked in. At least Ubuntu does use all open source and open standards, and you could hire a consulting firm to carry it on if Canonical goes away or stops supporting the desktop or whatever. This is why I think it's really important in businesses and in enterprises and in governments, we shouldn't go in talking about cost at all. In fact, uh, let's say it's even a little more expensive. Let's say that because I think the total overall win for the public is open formats and avoiding vendor lock-in for the core operating system, which powers your entire infrastructure. The value of that long-term, especially when it's government money, so it's citizens' tax money, Like, that's just critical. Having document formats that we can open for the next 25 years, that matters. That matters a lot in these types of deployments. Having something where different contract support companies or internal IT support can actually build and extend your system and maintain it and avoid technical debt is so much more valuable than the cost of the machine license or the support license. Like, it's phenomenally more valuable in these institutions because these are long-term institutions that get 10-plus years out of these machines if they can, and they're creating documents that have to be consumed for 30-plus, 50 years. So that's the value that we should be selling to these institutions, not the cost of the software. Like, we're going to lose if that's what we focus on. Yeah, and you have to figure that changing from, say, Ubuntu to Red Hat has got to be a hell of a lot easier and cheaper than moving from Windows to Linux or vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean, just from a file system standpoint, it's easier to move your data from one extended four file system to another extended four file system. It doesn't matter what the kernel is or what the user land is. But going from NTFS to extended four, that's a hell of a transition. Just like simple things at that level or backing up your configuration file for Nginx. You could use that on another box. Like there's there's direct one-to-one value, skill set, etc. You make the migration once, and then you reap those benefits for the life of the systems. That's that's the real value there. Um, and we'll see where South Korea goes. I, I hope they're not just leveraging. One would think that if they're at this stage, they've still got a year and change of support from Microsoft, extended support for Windows 7. So they they're in a good position right now. Well, if they do switch to open standards and open source, then surely they're going to be taking full advantage of Microsoft open sourcing one of the algorithms behind the Bing search engine. I was going to come on here and be all like, womp, womp, Bing algorithm, open source, who cares? Um, I was wrong, man. I, I did some investigation into what this actually does, and it, it really makes me appreciate that search is a way harder problem than I ever have appreciated. Yeah, because if you think about doing just a, a find or grep or whatever, the time that that takes, usually you're only dealing with a few hundred or a few thousand files, and if it takes a second, whatever. But if you're dealing with billions of files and it needs to be instant, then that is a very tricky problem to solve. Especially when you have the variability of human language. An example they give in the documentation and in a video is um, a user sits down and wants to search for the Rocky Four movie. But Rocky IV, the proper spelling, is in Roman numerals. But 
being, you know, just an average user, they sit down, they type in Rocky and the number four. The system has to be smart enough to, to consider other factors and still return the right results. Another example they gave is the word bank generally means like a financial institution. But you can also bank things. Like there's a lot of there, – you can have a bank side of a hill. Like there's a lot of different uses for the word bank when you think about it. And a computer has to know what the intention is. And so that's the element they've open sourced here, a key piece of what makes that possible. It seems Microsoft's intention by making this open source isn't to make Bing take off like crazy, but to just give developers another tool to work with machine learning and AI. Essentially, what you have here is a Python library with AI models pre-built. And it has, I quote, a space partition tree and graph algorithm. <laughs> Speetag. <laughs> and that's what's at the core of the open source Python library that Microsoft is making available. It's not a new idea, vector search, but it's it's really powerful. And they are teaming vector search up with machine learning here, buzz, 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 and then releasing that as an MIT licensed Python library. That's it. I'll spin up an Azure instance and running this tomorrow. <laughs> to the cloud, Joe. It's time to do some vector-based searches. <laughs> do you think that's what it's about, though, just driving people to Azure? I, mean, I know that's the kind of cliche go-to, but I can't really see any other reason why they would open source this. Oh, yeah, sure. I think so. I mean, machine learning is a big part of the platform's future plans, and it, I think, is very valuable from a brand standpoint. Even if there's not a direct correlation to Azure, I think it's pretty powerful from a brand standpoint to be a leader in this industry, to have services that enable machine learning, to be releasing software that enables machine learning. I think it's um, pretty clever on Microsoft's part. They're trying to get legitimacy with the developer community and giving them really good free open source software. Well, how are developers not going to like that? People just have to keep looking for ways to hate Microsoft, but this one isn't going to be one of them. Oh, I'm sure people will find some way to hate them about it. Yeah, there's a way to twist this, I'm sure. It's, I mean, after all, it does have Bing in the name. <laughs> well, before we get out of here, there's a breaking story as we've been recording. So details are a little bit light at this point, but it seems that Google have cut off Huawei, and so there'll be no more G apps for them. And if they want to sell any Android phones, then it's just AOSP all the way for them. Boy, what a story. As we're recording, Reuters publishes that Alphabet Inc., Google's parent company, has suspended business with Huawei that requires any transfer of hardware, software, or technical services except for those that are available in the open source project, like Joe said. Here's the direct quote from a Google source. Huawei will only be able to use the public versions of Android and will not be able to get access to proprietary apps and services from Google. Google has clarified that includes the Play Store and Play services and has also clarified that existing Huawei users that currently have access to the Play Store will still be able to update the apps that they have now from Google. So your Gmail app and whatnot will still get updated, but what happens to your operating system and telco updates and things like that, that's all up in the air right now. This has got to be a massive blow for the company. Oh, well, it's fine for the users. They can just flash Lineage and the Google apps and they'll be fine. Oh, wait, no. Huawei locked down the bootloaders <laughs> so no one can do that. Right, right. Yeah, this is a hell of a story. And there's there's some deep political sides to this that we're not going to get into. On Thursday, the Trump administration added Huawei to a trade blacklist. So I think this is likely Google responding to that. They probably don't have much of a choice in this situation. He does have the best blacklist. Tremendous. 
<laughs> people say, Joe. People say. <laughs> people tell him. <laughs> Not a lot of people know this. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows. <laughs> I think you're going to have to follow up on uh, Linux Unplugged on Tuesday with this because this is uh, going to be a big story this week by the looks of things. Yeah, I would imagine the next couple of days it'll develop. So if something interesting does come out of this, you bet. We'll put it on there. And like always, we're going to get the latest and greatest that's happening in the open source world every single week right here on Linux Action News. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Also, we have two events coming up at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. We've got a Kubernetes study group coming up and a dinner at Texas Linux Fest. If you're going to Texas Linux Fest, it'd be awesome to see you there. Meetup.com slash Broadcasting for those and future events. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the last study group that has been published on YouTube, Command Line Threat Hunting. So do check that out. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I am at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.